Good afternoon, everyone, and happy Sabbath to you. Thank you to the, our young people for the, the special music. Very fitting and very meaningful. Today is, is our youth day here in Charlotte. We are uh, appreciating uh, getting our young people more involved and, and appreciating the, the things that they do and how we can get them more involved. I'd like to talk about something today that pertains to them, pertains to all of us, but in some ways does pertain to our young people, I think, in a particular way that um, we'll talk about today. Last Wednesday was December 7th, the day when Pearl Harbor was attacked. In less than two hours, more than 2,500 people were killed with a 1,000 more wounded. 18 American ships were lost, as well as about 300 planes. It was a devastating attack by the Japanese, a surprise attack that drew the United States into World War II. Many movies and documentaries have, and articles and books have come out recently because this year marks the 75th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack and America's entrance into that war. The war that was the costliest war in human history in terms of loss of life and in every, by every uh, measurement, 25 million men in uniform lost their lives. Many tens of millions more civilians died as well. For those of us who have been born in the years since World War II, it seems a far off. It seems like a part of history. And yet there are still a few people around who remember it who experienced it, and it's good to reflect that it really wasn't that long ago. The worst, most violent convulsion of war in history to this point. We must not forget what happened. In that light, another movie came out recently, which got me thinking as well. This was an unusual movie. Because it depicts a hero, but an unusual hero. His name is Desmond Doss. Some of you may be familiar with that name. He was an army medic, a real person during World War II. And the recent movie Hacksaw Ridge tells the story of how he rescued more than 70 wounded men on a harrowing night in May of 1945, maybe end of April, I forget which date that particular night happened, but it was 1945 in in Okinawa. A horrible firefight had taken place. Many casualties, many wounded men left on the field. All night long he worked in constant danger to uh, rescue as many men as he could. Tremendous bravery and boldness and fearlessness, and love, frankly, for his fellow men. Many times he put himself in danger uh, behind enemy lines, other than even other than this particular day. But what was most remarkable about him was not just his bravery, but his personal conviction, because he never carried a gun throughout the whole war. He never fired a gun 
He never put an enemy in the crosshairs of a weapon to destroy that enemy and pull the trigger. You know, we can appreciate those who have had bravery and courage and boldness in our history. And we can admire even more those who have stood for principles even beyond just courage and bravery and boldness. He was a conscientious objector. I'd like to talk about this today because every 18-year-old man has to be concerned about this. And as time goes on, probably every 18-year-old woman has to as well. A year ago in this country, the, uh, the determination was made that, that all combat positions are now open for women. And so, therefore, now the discussion in our government is opening up the draft or, or requiring the draft of women as well, if we do have a draft. So it probably will happen eventually. The draft has been instituted in this country over the years. Last time it was rescinded, I believe, was 1973. Other countries have different laws. Some of them have compulsory military service, which makes certainly it difficult for God's people, puts them in a difficult position and forces them to make some difficult decisions. One way or another, God's people all over the world have to deal with this question, how should a Christian view military service, especially our young people? So let's talk about that today. As we are focusing a little bit more on the youth, the, the future of God's church, those who in time will be carrying the mantle, taking it forward. I'd like to talk about that today. Mr. Rand Millich gave a sermon in Kansas City some time ago uh, dealing with this subject in depth. Hopefully we can make that sermon available or, or have him retape it again here sometime. brings out a lot of really good foundational principles. I won't address every detail of it. We also have a number of articles that have been published over the years that I'll mention as we go along. But I would like to talk about war and military service from one particular angle. And that is, what are you training for? What are you training for? If you'd like a title, this is my title, Training for the Right Army. Training for the right army. We're all training. Every day of our life is training. Training for something. Training how to act. Training how to react. Training how to behave in, in certain ways based on certain stimuli and certain circumstances we face. In some cases, we go into training with forethought and purpose. We go to school. We take classes. We learn a language. We... Uh, we take lessons on uh, an instrument. We learn math. We learn science. We learn how to use a computer. But in other cases, training is going on really without our even knowing it. We're being trained to do certain things, to develop habits, to respond because of choices we make. Without even known, knowing we're being trained. And we'll talk about that as we go along today as well. But the bottom line is we are all training for something every single day. 
The question is, brethren, what are we training for? What are you training for? You know, the military puts a high premium on training. They drill day after day after day. They practice with weapons. They practice and train in regard to strategy and tactics. They drill on particular machines that they are going to be operating. They drill how to conduct every moment of their lives from the time they get up and how to make their bed and when to make their bed until the time they put their head on the pillow. They're not just trained to do certain things, but they're trained to think a certain way. Everything they do is designed to support that training. Why are they trained? They're trained so that when they're put in anticipated situations and unanticipated situations, they will react in a predictable way. They'll react instinctively. They'll react without thinking. And the intensity of the training helps deal with fear. You know, there's a, there, there are studies of uh, soldiers and how, uh, how they deal with fear. And there's one particular study that was done in comparing infantry soldiers, regular soldiers, and special forces soldiers. And under extremely stressful situations, uh, how their bodies responded to uh, the stress Uh, based on their training. And the hypothesis was that, well, the Special Forces uh, soldiers probably would react with less stress because they have better training. It didn't happen that way. It says, surprisingly, the levels of this this certain uh, 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 substance that's released when when they're put under stress, the levels of NPY, a peptide, among the special forces soldiers were much higher than those of the regular armed forces. However, the special forces' NPY levels quickly subsided while the regular armed forces' levels remained elevated. In other words, while the regular infantry forces become paralyzed by their discomfort and their survival instinct, the special forces were able to quickly manage their discomfort and their response to the survival instinct and then channel their reactions in a productive and constructive manner. This explains why special forces respond so well in extremely trying situations. It's not that they don't feel fear or discomfort, but rather they've trained themselves to manage their discomfort and survival instinct much more effectively. As a result of this training, they're hardier and more resilient. Interesting. So it's not that they didn't react with a a high level of stress in their body, but because of their training, they quickly got control of it and were able to function and do what they needed to do. You know, we are training for war. Let's turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. We are in an army as well. If we've been baptized and called in this time, we are being called into God's army. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul wrote and said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. Train the next generation 
who will be able to teach others also. Why? So that next generation can pass it on as well. You, therefore, verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 2, you, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, we could say the draft is going on. The draft is currently actually going on right now in God's church. Our Father is calling and drafting soldiers into his work, into his army. We didn't just sort of join the church. We've heard that many years. We, we understand that. You don't just come to the church. Our being here is not a result of our lifelong search for truth and, and search for meaning. At some point, God had to open our mind and specifically help us to see and understand. Even second-generation Christians. We are being conscripted in an army. And it's by the Father that we can come to Jesus Christ. Verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So we've been drafted and we've been put into training. Now, was he telling Timothy, you need to join the Roman army? You need to be a Greek uh, mercenary in the, in the Roman legions? No. But he was saying you're going to have to have grit and determination and perseverance, and you're going to have to endure. You know, some think conscientious objectors don't want to fight because they're cowards. In fact, Christ exhorts us not to be cowards, and he says, we know, we've read this, you've read this in Roman, uh, Revelation 28, the cowardly are some of those who won't be in the kingdom, along with the idolaters and unbelieving and sexually immoral. So it's not that God wants us to shrink back from a challenge. He wants us to train us to face challenges and, if necessary, to face even dangers if we have to. Not that we want to, not that we're seeking that, but if we have to. Let's turn over to Luke 14 and verse 26. Luke 14 and verse 26. But our, our training has to be in the right way and for the right reason and, and with the right training. And in the right army, Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus Christ said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now again, there is no confusion about this word hate. It doesn't mean that we are to hate our relatives or even hate our own life. It, it, when we look at the, the word in Strong's and other helps, it means to love less by comparison, to, to, to put one choice above the other in favor by, by degree, by comparison. So it's an extremely high calling requiring absolute loyalty to Jesus Christ. So, therefore, our training in this life, everything we do, 
every day should support our calling. Brethren, is this the case in our life? Young people, is this the case in your life, even if you're not baptized yet? Because you're preparing for responding to this call. You're frankly responding already. You have the opportunity to respond. So, what are are three things that we are training to do? What are three things that we are training? Number one, number one, in God's church, in God's work, in God's army, we are being trained to come under Christ's absolute authority. We are being trained to come under Christ's absolute authority. It's not that we don't want to follow our government. In fact, the church of God has a long history of having respect and faithful obedience to the laws of the land. We can look at a lot of scriptures that that uh, reflect that. First, I'll just reference this one, 1 Peter 2.17. says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The author, uh, S. Gustin Olson, makes an interesting point in the booklet, in the book, rather, The Apostasy of the Lost Century, where he talks about even within the first century, there begins to be a delineation between nominal Christians and true Christians. And the nominal, nominal Christians were more apt to be involved in civil disruption. But the true Christians who followed the Scripture were respectful to the authorities, paid their taxes, as onerous as that may have been. You know, from time to time, even in our day, uh, there are some that, that come along with the idea that, well, the government cannot tax us. It's illegal for the government to tax us. Well, what does Scripture say? That's not upheld by Scripture at all. Notice in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul said, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except for God, from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, all it takes is a little bit of reading into the background of the Roman emperors and finding that this was an incredibly corrupt system that God's people were living under at that time. And yet, Paul said, respect those that are in authority. It has nothing to do with whether they have earned it or not. If they're constituted authority, we, we are law-abiding. We respect them. He says, rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do you, do you want to not have to live in fear that you're going to be arrested for breaking the law? Then do good. Do what's good. You'll have praise from the same. He is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. There's going to be a knock on your door, and it'll catch up to you. 
For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. It's good for our conscience. It's good for our character to come under authority, even the authority of, of the state. For because of this you also pay taxes. There it is. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So we read Scripture and we're told to honor the king, whether or not they are honorable. You know, that's also a reminder as politics in our country and around the world get more heated and get more polarizing. We have to be careful how we approach and how we refer to our leaders. We come from a long line of people who respected the government over them and obeyed the laws of the land. However, there's a caveat, Acts chapter 5. Notice Acts chapter 5. They obeyed the laws of the land as long as it didn't contradict the laws of God. We know the story how Peter and John uh, were, and the other apostles, after Christ's resurrection, they were preaching uh, about the resurrection of Christ and explaining uh, who murdered him and who was guilty and what the responsibility was for all mankind, frankly, to uh, honor the, the risen Messiah. And then, notice in verse 29, just before verse 29, they were commanded by the Jews to speak about that no more. In verse 29 of Acts chapter 5, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin, and we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we obey every law in the land that does not contradict God's laws. And that's the principle we abide by. Every day as we go before our Father in prayer, We are acknowledging him as our creator. We are being trained to come under his absolute authority. When we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, we're acknowledging that he is our absolute ruler and sovereign. We're being trained by doing that. That's our training. Each Sabbath that we come here, why why do we come here and why do we attend in in congregations around the world. Yes, we love each other. Yes, we want to be around each other. Yes, we're inspired by being here. Yes, we are encouraged and edified. Yes, we derive strength from the fellowship. Yes, we walk away refreshed and, and energized. Yes, we experience camaraderie through our functions and activities. But why do we come here? 
Because we're commanded. Because it's an absolute command to attend, to worship, to fellowship, to come before God together as God's people. By showing up, we acknowledge that God is our sovereign ruler. And that we have unconditionally surrendered to his authority. We're being trained to do that. Notice in John chapter 18 and verse 36. John 18 and verse 36. So it's not just a matter of coming because we feel good when we come. It's a matter of coming because we are coming under his authority. John 18:36. This is the conversation that Christ had with Pilate uh, when Pilate was asking him, uh, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him in verse 34, John 18, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. What a powerful statement. Several things that we learn from that one statement. One is the declaration that Christ is a king. Christ is a king. Secondly, he has a kingdom. Thirdly, his kingdom has servants. Fourthly, his kingdom is not of this world. And fifth, his servants do what they're told. And since he said they do not fight in this world's battles, in this particular case, not to defend him, but they, the implication is there will be times when they will fight. And, of course, we understand in Revelation, it talks about the saints coming with Christ to set up his kingdom on this earth. We are coming under the authority of Christ's power. The question is, are we training in that every day? Do we acknowledge his power in our life every day? You know, again, young people, one of the things that the church advises you and will advise you as you come to that point in your life when you have to declare uh, if you are conscience-bound to not participate in the military, one of the things that you'll need to do is provide proof. Proof that this is your way of life. Not just a last-minute thing to get out of the military. Do you have proof in your life that you are coming under the authority of Jesus Christ every day. Young people, does your life reflect that? Think about it. We'll talk about some particulars a little bit later. But that's the, that's the question we have to answer. And, and you will have to answer we are part of an army that is forming, but it's, it's not this world's 
army. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. When we become baptized, we die to this world, and our life is bought and paid for by Jesus Christ, and we are no longer our own. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 talks about a different way of life for those who are Christ's. He says, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? That's our commitment when we develop a relationship with Jesus Christ we come under his absolute, unquestioned authority. You are not your own. For you, Why? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So because Christ paid for us to cleanse our sins, to forgive our sins, to wipe away our sins, therefore we are no longer our own. We literally become citizens of another country. For your notes, just reference Philippians 3.20. Paul said in, in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Paul just thinking, that, that, that's a nice-sounding word. You know, that's a nice-sounding metaphor. A uh, nice-sounding sentiment. Our, it's, sort, it's sort of like our citizenship is in heaven. Or did Paul really understand what citizenship was? You know, when he was about to be scourged and whipped by the Roman soldier, and he said, do you realize I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen? Everything changed, right? All the rules changed because suddenly the Roman soldier recognized this man has rights that I cannot violate. Citizenship matters a lot. It gives us rights. It also gives us responsibilities. 2 Corinthians 5.20 also says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens of a different kingdom in preparation for that kingdom, and we are now ambassadors in this world from that kingdom. We operate under different laws, and again, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but the point is, we're, 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 we're not from here. Yes, we were born here. Yes, we are. You have a driver's license that says you're you know, a citizen of the state of North Carolina, all of that, or wherever you are from. But our ultimate citizenship is from a foreign land, from the kingdom of God, the kingdom which is now in heaven and will come here. So we come under authority. We are training to come under authority. What does it mean and where does it lead? That brings us to the next point. Number two, we are training to obey Christ without compromise. We are training to obey Christ. Our commanding officer, Jesus Christ, 
without compromise. Let's go back to the story of Desmond Doss. He had incredible courage and bravery. He had a lot of guts. He really was willing to stick up for his principles. But there are some things that he compromised on. And my intention is is not to uh, denigrate at all the, the incredible courage he had or the incredible principles and convictions that he had, but there were certain things he compromised on. And I think it's instructive and important for us to have this conversation. When was the Sabbath? If you understand the story, if you follow the story of of real-life Desmond Doss, my understanding is that he, he... He kept the Sabbath, by and large, while he uh, was enlisted. And the story on on one of the websites that describes the story describes it this way. The final assault, again, this is that period when they were, his company was attempting to take Hacksaw Ridge. The final assault to take the Maida Escarpment happened on the morning of May 5th, 1945. a Saturday, the day of the Sabbath which the fourth commandment says should be devoted to prayer. Given that Desmond was the only medic left in B Company, he agreed to go but requested that he first be given time to read his Bible. The delay was approved up the chain of command and the assault was put on hold until Desmond finished his devotions. That day, the 307th Infantry Regiment of the 77th Infantry Division overtook Hacksaw Ridge for good. So he was a Sabbath keeper, and yes, uh, he agreed to keep it in, in most cases, but on this particular day, he agreed to not keep the Sabbath. Now, he, certainly he had his reasons. He had his rational, you know, rationalizing that uh, he was going to go to help. He was going to go to save life. The fact of the matter is he broke the Sabbath. The other thing is that not just killing is objectionable in the military, but the part of being in the military is that it inevitably leads to compromise. Being in the military itself inevitably leads to compromise because you're following two masters. See, Christ said, you know, if your ox falls in the ditch, you should pull it out. But he didn't say throw your ox in the ditch first. He didn't say make a job out of pulling out oxen out of the ditch on the Sabbath. He didn't say set yourself up where you're obligated to compromise, where it's inevitable that you're going to compromise about the Sabbath. He said, you've got to choose which master you're going to follow. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. What does it say? What did, what did Christ say? What, what happens if you follow two masters? You're inevitably going to have to compromise in your loyalty to one of them. It doesn't work. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 
24, you, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot promise absolute obedience to God and at the same time promise absolute obedience to the military. And that's exactly what you do when you join the military. Why are you called a GI? It stands for government issue. You are now their property. They own you for as long as you are enlisted, as long as you are committed to them. When they say jump, you jump. When they say don't jump, you better not jump. When they say go, you go. When they say come, you come. The Roman centurion that Christ that came to Christ explained that, and he even Christ was was marvelled that this Roman centurion uh, uh, connected that to how how uh, believing what Christ said he would do would happen. But the point is, the Roman centurion expected if he told his men to do something, they did it. You are not your own if you sign up for the military, even if you're a non-combatant. You're an asset of the U.S. government or government in other countries, wherever your country you're a part of. And therefore, it will inevitably lead to compromise. I remember talking to one gentleman some years back who was in the military, who was a go-to, who wanted to be a part of the church, was, was felt like he was being called and his mind was being open to the truth. And he was excited about it. He was talking about it. He was wanting to learn about it. He was a non-combatant. He was a band member. He played the trumpet. That was his job. And I said, well, okay, you need to talk to your, uh, your CO, your commanding officer, to uh, explain your convictions. So he did. And uh, they were all for his practicing his beliefs as a Christian. They made all kinds of accommodation. And by law, they are required to make religious accommodation so that you can practice your religion until it affects the mission of the company. And once it affects the mission of the company, the mission comes first. And that's what he learned when he went to his CEO. His CEO was, was okay with, uh, you know, getting, uh, being able to practice your religion, but if you've got to play your trumpet, if, if, the, if the band is going to be playing on the Sabbath, you've got to be there. Isn't that interesting? It's not even, he wasn't even a rank-and-file soldier carrying a weapon, but even in a non-combatant job. It was too bad. And um, to my understanding, he never got over that hurdle. So where is his God? Another recollection I have is of a, of a veteran who some years ago, as a member of the Church of God, who had been in the service before that, gave a sermonette, and he explained the root of the problem of serving in the military is essentially idolatry. And I had not heard it that way before, but it was interesting. It made a lot of sense. 
that you basically have to idolize the military structure, the apparatus, the machine, unquestioned obedience while you're there. You belong to them. And yet, again, how can we function as a, as a Christian who we already determine that we have to have unquestioned obedience and loyalty to the authority of Christ? How can we possibly have anyone else take that spot without it being idolatry? Again, brethren, we, we and young people, we come from a long line of faithful men and women in the church of God who have not fought in the military. Not being arrogant about it, not being insolent about it, not being disrespectful about it, but being uncompromising about it. We have a series of articles from Mr. John O'Gwen some years ago um, that were put together. Uh, copies actually are available on the uh, on the table for here locally that are very helpful in explaining a number of things related to the issue of being a conscientious objector. Uh, three articles. Uh, one is called Violence, War, and Christianity. The second is called The Truth About Old Testament Warfare. Answers a lot of the questions that normally come up in terms of the Old Testament. Uh, that's normally the, 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 the dilemmas, so-called, that, that people um, throw at you. Uh, but it's a very, very helpful article. And lastly, the military service in God's true church. The reprint number is R118. If you'd like to get a copy of that, uh, you can get one by, by writing to headquarters. But one of the things that Mr. O'Gwen explains in the articles is the, the matter of a, being a conscientious objector is not a new idea. That has been a part of the true church from the very beginning. That's one of the key doctrines that has differentiated uh, God's people from the world. Uh, he quotes some of the early uh, Latin church fathers who who in other ways had watered-down doctrine, but at that time, uh, in the 2nd century, even into the 3rd century, were still saying that true Christians should not fight in the military. Interesting. Of course, that changed when when Constantine uh, came into the scene, and suddenly the, the church was a part of the state. And so... But we, we understand that the Church of God has a long history of being conscientious objectors. Uh, Edward Gibbon writes that in his history as well. And you can refer to that and, and read it uh, yourself. So not only does participating in the, in the military uh, violate the obvious laws against killing our neighbor, but the whole way of life, whole way of life puts ourselves in a compromising position. Let's break this down to a little more practical level. We are being trained to recognize decisions that we make today and how they will lead us to possibly compromise in the future. Think about it. Just as we were talking about Desmond Doss, you know, he had made a decision. He wanted to be a part of the military 
And that decision, some weeks, months, years down the road, led him to have to compromise on the Sabbath. What parts of our life are we making decisions today? Are we setting a trajectory today that are going to be setting us up to compromise tomorrow or the next week or the next month or the next year? You know, sometimes some people don't think it's a big deal to date outside the church. Or let me back up a little bit. Some don't think it's a big deal to have significant relationships outside of the church. No, let me back up furthermore. Some don't think it's a big deal to just sort of have coffee once in a while with someone outside of the church if they're a single. You know. And yet, think about it. <clears throat> and think about how casual relationships, if we're not aware of what's going on, can lead to having a little bit more interaction and a little bit more getting together and a little bit more affection and then love takes over. And love's a wonderful thing. Love's a powerful thing. And next thing you know, you're in love and what can you do? And yet the person's not in the church. What little decisions today lead to compromises tomorrow? What about fornication? You know, how does that happen? Does it just sort of happen all of a sudden? Or are there decisions made way before the act where we allow ourselves to get a little too familiar, allow ourselves to be alone with those of the opposite sex, with no one else around, when we really shouldn't, when it's really not a good idea, and barriers start coming down, and we grow a little more familiar, and there's a little bit more closeness, and then there's a little bit of physical contact, and there's a little bit more that it leads to. And one by one, the barriers come down. And all of a sudden, we make a mistake. And we think, how did this happen? We had no intention of making. We were setting up to compromise way back upstream. Maybe it's just something like mouthing off to our boss. You know, maybe we never intended to do that. But we got hurt and we started nursing those hurt feelings. And we started nurturing a negative attitude and we started talking behind their back and grousing to others. And before you know it, we're, we're saying things or we're doing things we never thought possible. The point is, compromise starts small. It never starts with the big decisions. It, it starts with small decisions that lead to big mistakes. We need to train ourselves to recognize where small decisions lead. Whether it's being too intimate with someone or whether it's having too much contact with someone outside the church or whether it's allowing hurts to fester. We are waging war. And our commander, 
wants obedience, no, commands obedience, not compromise, in an age that is all about compromise, this age of Laodicea. We must be vigilant. We must be open to be corrected. We must train every day, just like the special forces train every day to be what God wants us to be. That brings us to the third thing we should be training to do. What is one area that a major area that military service leads us to compromise in? That is devaluing human life. Devaluing human life. We are being trained, number three, to value human life. Put it the other way. We are being trained to value human life. When it comes to human life, Christ was very clear that no matter what happened in the Old Testament, no matter how many times the the kings of the Old Testament fought and slew, no matter how many times that happened, there are explanations for that, and Mr. O'Gwen goes into that. No matter how much God may take life, and even in the future from rebellion and rebellious nations, because God can give it back. When it comes to us, under the new covenant, we must highly respect human life. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, it says, He said, You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Christ taught us to love our enemies. When it comes to participating in the military, it's clear that the matter of killing is not compatible with what Christ taught, what he said. Yes, he was willing to lay down his life for his friends. And we admire those who have been willing to do that for others. We have the utmost respect for those who have been willing to do that. But in the final analysis, Christ's instructions are, love your enemies. How can we take the life of another human being? Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47. At Christ's arrest arrest prior to his death, he told them to bring bring a sword. One of them said, here are two swords. He said, that's sufficient. And it seems like he did it for, for a reason. So this example and this teaching would be here. Uh, when they were in the garden, then uh, verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, this is Matthew 26, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came. He betrayed him with a kiss. They laid hands on him, and suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, this was Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Certainly he was not aiming for his ear. He probably was, it was a headshot, and the guy ducked. And this was a perfect opportunity for Christ to say, well done. 
You other guys should have reacted the way Peter did. He was the only one that had it right. Or did he respond that way? No. Jesus said, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide with me with more than 12 legions of angels? I think that's about 6,000 soldiers in each legion. So what is that, 72,000 angels? You know, in a moment he could have had that kind of firepower behind him. And yet he said, Peter, put the sword away. And he even healed the ear of the servant of the high priest. What's the overall view of life that Christ is teaching us? Christ isn't against using power, but it has to be in the right time, in the right place, and for the right purpose, with the right spirit, by the right person or persons, whether they are physical or or spirit, spirit persons. He certainly will use force when he comes back and will be a part of that. How much do we value human life? You know, one of the things that military training does is to desensitize soldiers to the aspect of killing. So they don't think of them as a person. There is a natural aversion to killing a person. You know, I I love to hunt. Not people, but uh, animals to eat. I love to hunt because it's a chance to get outside in the wilderness. I have good memories with my dad and my brothers growing up. Uh, I like to, uh, to appreciate where my meat comes from. I like to be reminded that something dies. If I have a steak, something had to die for that to happen. It doesn't just come from the store. I like to be reminded of that. But you know, for all of that, it takes a second to, when you put the crosshairs of your weapon on a living, breathing, fleshly organism, and you know you're going to take the life of that organism, it takes a second to, to sort of steel yourself to do that. At least it does me. I don't think it comes natural, or should come natural, to take the life of another being. And then I think of first-person shooter video games that are so common today and are being played by a whole generation of young men. Let me explain what I mean by first-person shooter. That's the type of ultra-realistic situational video game where a player sees on his screen what it would look like if he was in a rock or in an urban fighting area with with blown up buildings and he's walking through the buildings and by his controls he can point his weapons and he has the crosshairs on his screen and there are figures running around and those are his enemies and he can put those crosshairs on that figure that person in the screen And when they line up, his brain can tell him to pull the trigger, 
And if he hits the trigger, that person, that figure falls down. And if he doesn't, the figure gets away. By the way, if he hits the figure in the head, he gets more points. And because, you know, our technology gets better and more realistic, of course, now when you hit the figure in the head, there's a splash of red behind it. And you get more points if you hit in the head. The brains are blown out. That's the experience of the first-person shooter. That's what a first-person shooter game is all about. I want to explain something here. These games are exciting. That's why there's a draw to teenagers and young men in, in our world today, and I'm afraid as well in the church. They are exciting. They're interesting. They're intriguing. They challenge you. They get the adrenaline going. They test your wits and your reflexes and strategy, and when you're playing with others in a multi-person game, it, it tests your teamwork. And they're addictive. They draw you in. You want to get better. You want to score higher. And the more you play, the better you score. You try to outwit your enemies. You learn. You experience. You get faster. Your reflexes are quicker. And there's even a feeling of feeling masculine in a society which has demasculinized our young men in recent times. They don't have a role of providing anymore. They don't have to open doors for ladies anymore, otherwise they might get slapped. They don't have the role of protecting anymore. That would be insulting for them to actually feel like they should protect a, a woman that they care for. So they resort to the last bastion of masculinity, extreme violent video games. Mr. Wallace Smith explained this in a sermon some months ago, Quit You Like Men, that these video games are popular because they appeal to guys. In a time when there are fewer and fewer and fewer things that are sort of considered okay to be masculine about. Ladies, think about this deeply and ponder it. You know, men were built to be builders and providers of society. If you want that, do everything you can to encourage the men in your life to be builders, to be masculine, develop your femininity, and encourage them to develop the true godly masculinity that is defined by being, being strong, and wanting to build something in society, not blow something up. These video games are attractive because guys can blow things up and they can blow bad guys away, even if it's just imaginary, it's socially acceptable, sort of. And that's the best part. Since it's imaginary, when you're done, you turn it off and it all goes away. But there's only one problem. You're putting those crosshairs on that figure who is not just a figure, but in your mind he is a human being. And when you pull the trigger, your mind cannot tell the difference. Your mind is being desensitized to the fact that you just pulled the trigger and caused 
a human being to fall down. There are studies that show this, that there is a relationship. When they, they map the brain and when they watch the brain and how it, re, how, how it reacts to violence, whether imaginary or whether pictures of real violence, the video games influence our brain on how we react to real violence. Our minds can't tell the difference. You know, the military uses games like the ones we've been talking about to desensitize their recruits from their natural revulsion to killing a human being. Going one step further, actually the military has been involved with the gaming industry from the beginning. Does that surprise you? Do a little web search. Go to a website called taskandpurpose.com, November 17, 2014. The article is The History of Video Games and the Military, and it goes back to the 50s, even to the beginning of some of the original video games. And over time, you can I don't have time to go through all of them, uh, but it says, uh, you know, Going back to the then later in the 1980s, one of the more popular games at the time was Atari's Battlezone, a tank game in the arcades with eerie green wireframe graphics. The Army Training Doctrine and Command, a.k.a. Tradoc, wanted Atari to turn its sci-fi shooter into a training simulator for the Army's latest infantry fighting vehicle, the M2 Bradley. Now, as the article says, it, it, they, they never actually, two prototypes were built. They never actually trained Bradley crewmen on them, but there was, a, there was a connection. In 1993, a small developer from Texas released Doom. The game pioneered the first-person shooter genre that continues to dominate the industry. The Marine Corps took note of the growing influence of games and how it could be a cost-effective supplement to training. Ever frugal, the Corps charged its Modeling and Simulation Management Office with finding a commercial product that could be modified for marine training needs. Lieutenant Scott Barnett was assigned to play PC games on the market that might fit the bill. That was his job, to play video games to figure out which one might work best in military training. And he eventually selected Doom While Marine Doom never became an official training tool, Marines were encouraged to play it, and it was sanctioned to be installed on government PCs. In 1997, General Charles Krulak, who was the Commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, issued a directive supporting the use of PC games for, quote, military thinking and decision exercises, end quote. The stage was set for the Marine Corps and other branches of the military to work hand-in-hand with game developers. The Corps developed a fire team training tool with Destineer Studios, who would later commercially release it in 2005 under the name Close Combat, First to Fight. The Army partnered with console game developer Pandemic Studios to develop Full Spectrum Warrior, its own squad-based training game, released in 2004. Arguably the highest profile and most controversial military game project is America's Army. 
Initially released in 2002, the title was not a training implement, but a recruiting tool. Interesting. The game available for free download or on disc at Army recruitment officers was an online multiplayer first-person shooter game that had players assuming the role of different infantry-related jobs in the Army. Financed and developed by the Army, the game rivaled many of its commercial contemporaries in terms of quality. The game was also designed to reinforce Army values and training. Did you hear that? The game was designed to reinforce Army values and training. There's a message that's coming across in these games. The game aimed aimed to get high schoolers thinking about a career in the Army long before they turned 18. Now, did this game have an impact? Within two years after being launched on July 4, 2002, within two years there were 3.3 million registered players who had spent 60 million hours playing it. Now, think for a moment of the incredible investment of time and youth and energy expended on a recruiting tool for the Army. And think of all the wasted time and energy from that youth. Since then, it has been downloaded more than 42 million times. This is as of 2014, I think, with a worldwide virtual Army of more than half a million people. These things have wide pervasiveness. But who's behind it? That's the point. Going on in this article, the military's use of games continues unabated, whether for training or recruitment. As budgets tighten, games have become an attractive supplement to expensive field training. Now it's because, hey, it's a cheap way to duplicate what would have to be done in the field. And as gaming moves into mainstream culture, the military faces the challenge of enticing a new generation of players to serve and fight. You know, brethren, the church faces the challenge of, let's say, enticing the new generation to serve and fight in God's army and not be deluded by this waste of their youth and energy and focus, which is not just a harmless game. It's actually a recruitment tool by this world's governments. Is it a coincidence that many of the games today have all the high-tech gadgets and weaponry of today's military? Absolutely not because they work hand in glove. And it's all cool. It's all packaged in a very exhilarating way with heart-pounding action and music. It's attractive. But what is it? It's propaganda for the U.S. Army. 
in Air Force, in Marines, etc. The relationship is so close that a recent laser weapons controls that just came out, that's actually this is a couple of years ago as well, September 9th, 2014, uh, a new, I'll just read the title, this is from smithsonian.com, and the title of the article, a military contractor just went ahead and used an Xbox controller for their new giant laser cannon. Why? Because all the guys are familiar with the controls on the Xbox controller. So they mount this new giant laser cannon on a truck, and they don't even redesign the controls. What should this say about our entertainment? Now, what's the problem? You know, are, are we worried that, that, that our guys are going to run out and join the military tomorrow? I don't think so. Uh, some of them may, but I don't think most of them would. Uh, are, are we worried they're going to turn into criminals or act out aggression on the streets today or tomorrow? I, I don't think so. <clears throat> I hope I, some of them may. I hope they don't. But what am I worried about? I'm worried that, that in a time when when we need our young men to be strong and courageous and stand up for the truth, they're having their minds and focus distracted by the temptations of the world, this virtual world which at the end of the game it's over and it was only a game, but it has affected them emotionally. It has desensitized them to have real feelings and emotions in real life. And they've wasted their time in a time when they could have been training and, and growing and preparing to build their lives and build even in the church and become pillars in the church and be fully in gear and fully engaged and fully on fire for the real fight, the real fight against Satan and against society and against their own human nature. They're being distracted and they're being deluded. We are looking for a few good men. We're looking for a few good men who can be pillars, who can be courageous, and a few good women as well who can prepare for their role as we go forward in the most dangerous and the most frightening time in human history and the most compromising time in human history, at least when we look at Revelation chapter 3 as far as God's people in general, in a time when we need every possible strength and support that we have so we can face those challenges of the future with strength and endurance, part of being ready to do that is to truly value human life. And every time we put the crosshairs on a human being, and it centers on them, and your brain tells you to pull the trigger, and there's a splash of red and that figure falls down, your brain is interpreting it as, you killed him. You killed him. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. 
God is training us for so much more. That's the point. There's so much potential that God wants us to attain to. But we've got to do it His way. We've got to value what He's doing. Matthew 5, verse 27, He said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Does this not prove that there's a connection between the heart and the eyes and the mind and the hand? If given the opportunity, we will do it with the hand if we have processed it with our mind and with our eyes. We don't need a study to prove that. That's what Christ said about 2,000 years ago. Now, how do we manage this? You know, parents, the job is yours. And I'm not saying it's a small challenge. Because every decision, you know, as our children grow, you've got to evaluate everything they do and everything you allow in your home. But the point is, we've got to do it. We've got to set parameters. We've got to help them. We've got to teach them restraint. You know, there are articles that say that actually some video games actually help to develop hand-eye coordination and reflexes within moderation. You know what the moderation is, they say? One hour a week. One hour a week. Who plays a video game one hour a week, right? So, the point is, you know, if things are not... Uh, flagrantly breaking God's law with, with sexual immorality being shown, visual immorality, or killing human life, or if it's not done in such a way that it's, it's stealing their time and, and not moderate, then we need to curtail it. There are so many other things that could be said on this. I'll just direct you to a LCN article that Mr. Wyatt Saselka wrote, Jurors, Soldiers, or Ambassadors, in July of August 2010. He talked about, again, young people preparing for standing before a draft board. And if they have your records, your Netflix records, of what movies you've watched, and if they have records of what video games you have played, first-person shooter video games you've played, then how are you going to explain to them you have a problem taking life? They're going to ask you, well, there's a contradiction here. The point is, are we learning to think like Jesus Christ thinks? 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 3, we are in a war. And he says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is 
fulfilled. We are at war. And we've got to have the right training, and we've got to be responding to the right commander. And we've got to be developing the thoughts of that commander. Because, you know, the outside world does have a philosophy, and they do have thoughts, and they do have ways of thinking, and they are pushing hard to get that across through these means. But we have a different means to develop the mind of Christ. Let's turn in conclusion to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. You know, in the military world, medals are given for exemplary behavior, for heroism on the battlefield, in combat, for going above and beyond the call of duty. But those who choose to live a life of honor and dedication to God's way will also receive a prize, and a a much bigger prize, a more long-lasting prize. And Paul talked about it in this scripture as he was facing the end of his life after a life of being a fierce warrior for God, for Christ, for his way, for being willing to endlessly to lay down his life for his brethren and for the gospel's sake. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Brethren, we've been conscripted into an army. We are in live ammunition exercises right now, aren't we? Right now. Even though we're being trained, we also are on the battlefield right now as we go about our daily lives. We're being trained for the future. We're training for God's army, for Christ's army. And and what an honor it will be when we can stand with him at his return with perfect love and perfect empathy and perfect compassion and we can intervene in this world's governments and we can stop the corruption and abuse and the rot and the filth that is present today as a result of our nations. That honor goes to the saints. And that's why we're training. And that's why we're in battle right now. So let's be sure we're fighting for the right army. And let's be sure we're training, submitting to the right training every day.